A huge cruise ship named the Brilliance of the Seas weighed anchor and eased out of harbor at the green island of Mykonos in the Aegean Sea. It was America's Independence Day in 2005. It was also the sixth night of the trip for the passengers on board the boat. There were 2,300 of them on board, and most of them were Americans. George Smith and his newlywed wife Jennifer were enjoying their honeymoon. They spent the day exploring Florence, eating and drinking exotic drinks. They partied into the morning of the 5th, and when, within what was only a couple of minutes, George would disappear from the cruise ship, leaving behind his forget-filled wife and an unruly group of men who may have murdered him. This case has more questions than answers and has not yet been solved. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's case. George Smith was a handsome man at 26 years old. He had dark hair, rugged good looks, and was a big man, easily over 200 pounds. He was celebrating his honeymoon with his new wife, Jennifer. They had a stateroom with a balcony on Deck 9. Early that day, they had spent time walking among the whitewashed villas of Mykonos. The highlight of their day was that they had met the actress Tara Reid. Later in the evening, they returned to their ship and prepared for a romantic dinner. He took the time to send pictures of them meeting Tara to his family. He described what a great time they had that day. He also jokingly asked them not to contact the two of them unless someone was dying. This was the last message they would ever receive from him. George's family and friends described him as a fun-loving, free-spirited boy who grew up doing the things American boys do. He played basketball in the driveway and rode his bike for miles and miles. He was on the football team at Greenwich High and was considered the family joker. Later, at Babson College, he studied computer science and received a business degree. He was known as the Wiz, with anything electronic. After graduation, he took a job with the computer firm in Stamford, Connecticut, doing research on internet search engines. However, in 2003, he surprised his family by quitting his job and coming back home to work at the family's liquor store. He moved into an apartment nearby and started updating the liquor store's computer systems and building a website for it. His father hoped George would take over the business one day. George was laying plans to move aggressively into internet liquor sales. At this time in his life, he would begin each day with a trip to the gym. His father noticed that the store seemed to be building its female customer base. He said so many women would come to the store just to see George, but George was very, very loyal to his girlfriend, Jennifer. George met Jennifer in 2002. He and his friend had rented a dilapidated rental house in Rhode Island for the summer. When the shower broke down, he began to use the bathroom of an upstairs apartment whose tenants included Jennifer's brother, Johnny. That's where the two of them met and started their relationship. Jennifer was a platinum blonde. Her father was a former policeman who switched over to running a construction business. She had plans to become a teacher. Before long, Jennifer moved into George's apartment and they seemed to be spending every available minute together. 
Eventually, he popped the question, and they spent long hours finalizing the details of their wedding. It was held at the Waterside Castle Resort in Newport, and took place only days before they boarded the cruise ship that fatefully ended George's life. At the wedding, they danced their first dance to Van Morrison's Into the Mystic. I personally think they had great taste in music. The next day, they hurried away from the family lunch to make it to the airport in time. They got their first look at the ship the following Wednesday afternoon. The brilliance of the sea sat quietly at anchor in the harbor. Guests climbed the gangway and spread throughout the ship, looking for their rooms and getting their first look at the casino, the disco, the restaurants, and the three big swimming pools. The newlyweds unpacked their things and appeared to be having a wonderful time as the first few days passed by. Pictures showed them embracing by the pool. He was shirtless and fit, and Jennifer was beaming with happiness and love. They seemed to be extremely happy and enjoyed spending their time awake late at night entertaining friends. Their neighbor in the cruise ship was a man named Cletus Hyman. He complained about being awake until 3.30 in the morning because of the noise from the Smith's room. He called the guest relations desk to ask what could be done, and they reported that if it happened again, he should call the desk and they would handle it. On the third day, the ship docked in Italy. Passengers piled into taxis and buses for an outing in Florence. The Smiths ended up sharing a car with a 20-year-old student named Josh Askin. He made friends with them and remained that way after they returned to the ship. Josh Askin was traveling with his father, mother, and younger siblings. It was through Josh that Jennifer and George also met four young men who were Russian. They were all in their teens and early 20s. Their names were Jeffrey, Zachary, Greg, and Rusty. Two of the four are brothers. There isn't a whole lot known about their backgrounds, but a good deal of information came out about their activities on the boat. The first incident will follow, and I'll share the rest as the case continues. According to reports, the ship's solarium, which contained a hot tub, was a great place for people to hook up. Young people met there and occasionally slipped off for quiet liaisons. The solarium was a non-smoking area. However, at least one of the Russian men was asked to stop smoking by one of the ship's officers. The man allegedly cursed at him and kept on smoking. The next morning, the report on the incident crossed the guest relation manager's desk. She had begun the cruise expecting things like this because the ship had an unusually high number of teenagers on board. She called the parents of the perpetrators and warned them that if they would act up again, they would be taken off the boat. They had been put on notice. However, this problem was only the beginning. On the day of the incident, Jennifer and George had dinner and then met up with a bunch of people in the casino, including the four Russians and Josh Askin. As the brilliance of the sea was motoring along, Jennifer, George, the Russians, and Josh were all gambling. According to reports, Jennifer and George were playing games separately. Jennifer took her time playing blackjack, and George was at the craps table teaching Josh how to play the game. According to Josh, he noticed that Jennifer was becoming cozy with a handsome South African staff member named Lloyd. As the casino closed around 2.30, 
Jennifer, George, and Josh all crowded into an elevator heading to the disco. Also in the elevator was Lloyd. Josh reported that Lloyd draped his arms around Jennifer, and Josh felt he had crossed boundaries. Josh said it was awkward, but didn't think that George noticed it at the time. According to all accounts, while at the disco, they were joined by three of the Russians. The fourth reportedly returned to their room and watched movies. They all sat around a table, drinking shots from a bottle of absinthe, which is a highly potent liquor. It's illegal in most of the West, and wasn't sold aboard the brilliance of the sea. It was suggested that the absinthe was smuggled on board the boat. It was perhaps over this time that George bragged about having a lot of money. Either he wanted at the casino or had the money from the wedding with him. Either way, it was assumed from the stories that were told later that George and Jennifer were very well off. As the evening progressed, Josh claimed to remain uncomfortably aware that Jennifer was sitting close to Lloyd and draping herself over other men. In time, George eventually noticed and walked over to her and called her a hussy. Three people reported that Jennifer and George engaged in a brief argument, which culminated with Jennifer kicking her husband in the groin and walking angrily out of the disco. Some people reported the fight was in jest. Josh reported that Lloyd followed Jennifer as she left. The problem with the story about Jennifer leaving with Lloyd is that it's demonstrably untrue. There were cameras in the area, and Lloyd left the disco with his friends around 3.15, arriving at his girlfriend's cabin very shortly after. This was recorded by his past key record. Witnesses saw Jennifer leave the disco unaccompanied at about 3.30 a.m., she stumbled on her way out and struck her head. One of the cruise company's cleaning men noticed her instability and followed after her. She was reportedly extremely drunk. He boarded the elevator with her and got her safely down to deck nine, where he left her. Jennifer was more disoriented than he realized because, unbeknownst to him, once off the elevator, she turned the wrong direction, away from her room. She came to a dead end at the ship's bow and fell to the floor unconscious. According to reports from Rusty and Josh, the disco closed at 3.30 and George was too drunk to walk unaided, so Josh and the three Russians helped him to his cabin. When they arrived, Jennifer wasn't there. George got worried and wanted to find her. According to reports, they headed to the solarium where the cruise's younger crowd tended to congregate after hours. Jennifer wasn't there either. They then took George back to his room, arriving at 4.02. This is true because it was verified once again by the computerized monitoring system that tracks when the key cards are used to open the room doors. The estimated time spent searching for Jennifer was approximately nine minutes. After they walked him back to his room, Zach, one of the Russians, said they put him to bed and even took off his shoes. Zach reported that George was in his bed, passed out, and not moving. They then went back to Zach's room and ordered room service around 4.30 and then went to bed. According to records, pass keys were used by Zach and Greg and that the rooms 3008 and 3004, which were their rooms, were opened at 4.05 and 4.07 respectively. The computerized data would seem to vouch for the young men's innocence. However, George disappeared from the cruise ship around this time. 
Could someone have gone back to room 9062? The answer is yes. And if a person went back to that cabin, would there be no passkey insertion to record it if another individual opened the door for them? Absolutely. In accordance with the young men's stories, the man who had the stateroom next door, remember him, the complaining neighbor? Cletus Hyman was a deputy police chief from California. In his statement, he said that just after 0400 hours on July 5th, I was awakened by a loud yelling in room 9062. The yelling sounded like people cheering on someone doing shooters. I removed my earplugs and could hear the subjects yelling in unison. At this point, I called the guest relations desk and reported the disturbance. Side note, this was around 4.05, around the same time the key cards were being used in the Russians' rooms. Returning to Cletus' statement, he said, he also banged on the wall. During the next several minutes, there was talking in the room, but I couldn't distinguish voices. It was quieter in the room for approximately five minutes, and then there was a loud arguing on the balcony between several male subjects. I cannot tell what was being said, as it sounded like it was Spanish. After about two minutes, I can hear someone speaking in English, saying goodnight several times. It sounded as if someone was trying to usher people from the balcony through the room. I heard the door open and male voices outside my door. After five to ten seconds, I opened my door and looked out. I observed three white male or Latin males walking towards the elevators. He checked his watch at this time, and it said 4.18 a.m. The Spanish could have been Russian, but the three males is always a point of contention. What happened to the fourth? Did he stay behind in George's room? The former police chief said that for about eight minutes, there was movement and talking in room 9062. He said, I heard cabinet doors open and close and the flushing of the toilet. I could hear one male voice in the room. Then I heard what sounded like balcony furniture being moved around on the balcony. It was being dragged about and picked up and dropped. Hyman was not the only one who heard the sounds. Two cabin doors down, a man named Carlos Manchaca was startled awake by the noise of many people. On the other side of the cabin, Pat and Greg Lawyer, that's their last name, not their profession. Anyway, they could hear the stressed voices and furniture moving but described the noises in more violent terms than Hyman did. They said, quote, What it sounded like to me was someone was throwing things against the wall, like throwing furniture in the room against the walls or against the floor. The noise was so loud that the lawyers thought someone was trashing the room. It got quiet for a minute or two, and then a few minutes later, they reported hearing a terrible thud. This was around 4.25. So, did the reportedly out-cold George wake up and begin talking to himself? What was all the furniture being flung around for? Was George raging against Jennifer, or was someone else tossing the room in search of cash and jewels? These are all questions that remain unanswered. The next sound, at approximately 4.30, only five minutes later, was that of two security officers finally answering Hyman's noise complaint, made at 4.05. You better get in there, said Greg Lawyer, as he poked his head out of his room. The security officers firmly rapped on the door, but after hearing nothing, they went away. At about the same time, a plumber found Jennifer asleep 
against the door at the end of the hallway on deck nine. Two security officers promptly arrived on the scene. When they got Jennifer back to her room, it was 4.50. They noticed the balcony curtain was closed and motionless, suggesting that the sliding glass door behind the curtain was closed as well. So if George had gone out, would he have closed the curtains and the glass door behind him? That doesn't really make sense. The next morning, Jennifer wakes up and wasn't startled that George was not there. She claims that she thought he must have been spending the night in his new friend's room. She also reported that she had no memory of the night before, but when she glanced at her watch, she realized she had a pre-scheduled massage and made her way to that massage appointment at 8.30. She'd had only three hours of sleep. She claimed that he had slept outside the stateroom at least one other evening during the cruise. I find this statement mind-boggling. I'd be pretty upset if my newlywed husband didn't spend every night with me on our honeymoon. About the same time she was arriving for her 8.30 massage, passengers on their balconies had noticed a bloodstain on a white canopy. This was the canopy that covered the lifeboats and was about three stories below the Smith's room. A passenger even snapped a picture of it, saying it looked like the shape of a person's body. A group of the ship's officers examined it, as did the captain. They wondered who went overboard. It took less than an hour to determine that the Smiths were the only guests not accounted for. An overhead page was given for Mr. and Mrs. Smith on the ship's intercom. After a few minutes, a spa attendant called to say that Jennifer was in the spa room and three officers went down to meet her. She said she had no idea where her husband was and assumed he would be sleeping somewhere else on the ship. The officers did not mention the bloodstains for fear of alarming Jennifer and escorted her to a nurse's office. Later, a woman came in with other officers and gently explained the situation. Jennifer was reportedly like a zombie. Then she became desperate and had a look in her eyes that said, help me. She was crying and seemed to be confused. They called in the doctor to make sure she was okay and she wasn't allowed back into the room. She couldn't get any of her clothes, so they took her to the ship's store where she was able to buy some. A few minutes after the Smiths were page, Josh approached the ship's officer and said that he had been partying with the Smiths late into the night. He had been with the Russians. He was one of the four who was in the room with George. He said they were probably in their stateroom asleep. Jennifer and Josh were led to shore to be interviewed by Turkish police. Jennifer was left in Turkey, eventually flying home to her family, and Josh was allowed back on the boat. At some point on July 5th, Josh sat poolside and reportedly told a woman named Margarita Chavez, who had witnessed the Smith disco fight, that, quote, it was room service that saved us, end quote. It seemed like Josh considered the room service and its documentation on their cameras to be an alibi. There is strong evidence that this alibi was fabricated because the Caribbean cruise line said there was no record of the orders written down or delivered. Not only that, but the Russians had verbally abused the room service operator earlier that night and the security officer's instructions were to cut them off if they should try to order again. They had taken a picture of the large meal they supposedly ordered, and it was time-stamped. 
None of the Russians were interviewed at that time. Police boarded the ship, studied the bloodstains, and searched the Smith stateroom. They found droplets of blood on a bedsheet and towel. They said the amount was very small and not consistent with someone being stabbed or seriously injured. Turkish police turned over their findings to the FBI, and so did Royal Caribbean. The Royal Caribbean states that they gave the FBI nearly 100 tapes from security cameras about the ship. Without permission from the authorities, the captain ordered the bloodstains hosed off at 6 p.m. that evening and prepared to leave Turkey. There was no suggestion that anyone considered mounting an ocean search. The ship had covered 200 miles the previous night. George Smith or his body could be anywhere. Jennifer, meanwhile, phoned her parents in Connecticut, who then shared the terrible news with the Smith family. That evening, the brilliance of the seas left the Turkish coast and headed back into the Aegean toward Athens. That's where it would anchor the next morning. The drama involving the Smiths was over, but the drama with Josh and the Russian boys was just picking up steam. Several incidents involving them occurred over the next 48 hours. One evening, Greg was carted to the disco. He was 17 and insisted that he was 18. On another occasion, the Russians phoned in yet another food order, cursing at the order taker. Once again, they were summoned to the hotel director's office. The director said of this meeting, I would say they were helpful and nice again, she says, but we made it very clear that this kind of situation, if it happened again, we would ask them to leave the ship. We made it very clear there would be no further warnings. On Thursday, July 7th, an elderly passenger had a heart attack and died, so the hotel director was not available when a young woman arrived at the medical center, and according to a source, asked the nurse about the morning after pill. The nurse said something was amiss and gently pressed the girl, who said she had been the victim of a rape. According to the ship staff investigation, the girl identified those involved as the four Russians. Again, the ship's hotel director called the boys and their parents, as well as Josh Askin's parents. The incident, it turned out, had been videotaped. Later, attorneys on the case said that one of the parents produced a copy of the tape and another copy was, quote, found, but attorneys won't say how. Rusty, again, he was one of the Russians. Later, his attorneys said they took part but claimed that the sex was consensual. Rusty said he was asleep in his room when one of the other Russians called. They told him that they were having sex with a young woman they had met in the ship's solarium. They asked him to bring his camera, which he did. His attorney said his client took no part in the incident whatsoever. Josh was also part of the group, but did not have sex with the girl. Word was spreading that the same boys in this incident were the same boys involved with George Smith's disappearance. People involved with the care of the young girl said they were afraid for her safety. Hours after the girl came forward, all the Russians and Josh Askin's family, 13 people in total, were all escorted off the ship. So what happened to George? Some people believe that all four men left the room alone and alive. It would be hard to believe that Josh, who had no links with the Russians, would cover up for one of them if they had remained behind in Smith's room. If Josh stayed behind, 
Surely one of the Russians would finger him. There was no evidence that anyone else visited the stateroom. Some people believe Jennifer killed him or that she asked the men to kill him. Neither of these allegations have any evidence to back them up. Jennifer did end up settling with the cruise line for $1.3 million. She maintains to this day that it was an accident. Why would someone want to kill George anyway? Speculation returned that he spoke of having large amount of cash in his stateroom. No one involved in the case said that any money was missing. One scenario is that George, like many men, enjoyed a good cigar while on vacation. At least one guest had smelled cigar smoke wafting from his room earlier in the cruise. The noises Cletus Hyman heard after the young men left could have been George drunkenly looking for a cigar. Maybe he took it outside. Perhaps he chose to sit on the balcony railing. Then the boat lurched and he fell off. Now these balcony railings are high. They're made so that people can't fall off. But there was a chair pushed up against the railing. The captain of the ship believed he saw a butt print on the railing. However, Smith's parents insisted that he was murdered, 100%. So fast forward six years. The Smiths pursued the case consistently and aggressively. Their lawyer said he made it his mission to push this case to the point where George's killer is convicted. Jennifer's lawyer believes the same thing. He said, I don't think there's any question that someone threw him overboard. And I don't believe the FBI would have spent millions investigating this case throughout the world if they didn't believe foul play was involved. After six years, many believed the case to be cold. So when the Smith's lawyer comes forward saying, based on the existing evidence and new information we've been able to uncover, I think we're getting closer to an indictment. He said there's a videotape shot by the three Russian-American men who were the last known people to see George alive. The Russians had filmed themselves sitting around a table on board the ship the afternoon of July 5th, just hours after George went overboard. On the tape, the Russians film each other mocking and callously joking about George's death. In the course of the filming, one of the Russian men, Greg, stands up and makes a statement that's very self-incriminating. The statement went something like, We taught him how to paraglide without a parachute. The FBI confirmed that they possessed this tape. So let's review the inconsistencies in Josh and the Russian story. First, they said Jennifer left the casino with Lloyd, who was a cruise ship staff member. Supposedly, they left together at 3.30, which led to the theory of an affair taking place on the boat. I'll keep in mind that Jennifer and George had just gotten married. This is untrue because the cleaner saw Jennifer leave alone, and Lloyd checked into his girlfriend's room with the key card before Jennifer left the disco. Secondly, the Russians claimed that they were all in their cabins when George died, relying on the room service delivery to be their alibi. According to the boat's records, food was not delivered. They also had ordered food earlier that day and berated the staff and were given instructions not to be given any food in their rooms. Thirdly, the men said they left the room together, but Cletus Hyman says he only saw three men leaving. That, along with the recorded video of the men saying that they gave him hand gliding lesson without a parachute, would make you think this was an open and closed case. But for some reason, this case is still open. There isn't enough hard evidence. In September of 2020, 15 years after George went overboard on the cruise ship, 
Greg, the Russian who made the bragging statements about George's death on video, was murdered in front of his home. Police believe whoever murdered him targeted him. They said it was an execution. Some people believe it's because he was talking too much about what might have happened on the cruise ship. Others believe it has to do with his past experience. He had been in jail before because of participating in drug trafficking. Perhaps he continued on that path. Greg, unfortunately, may have taken the truth of what happened to him when he died. I hope you enjoyed today's case. I'd like to thank all of you who have taken time to give Twisted Travel and True Crime a five-star rating and a nice review. If you haven't yet, I would love for you to take a minute to do so. It helps people decide whether to listen or not. If a five-star review is not an option, please share the podcast with a friend. If you have a case suggestion or any information you'd like to share, please reach out. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Or you can reach me via email at twistedtravelandtruecrime at gmail.com. Thanks again, and as always, I'd like to wish you fair winds and following seas.